Amen. Uh, if you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to look at Matthew 4 verses 1 through 11 today. Uh, if you remember last week, uh, we were in Matthew 3, uh, where we saw John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus uh, in the wilderness, baptizing and calling people to repent of their sins and to prepare for the coming kingdom. Uh, we also saw Jesus' baptism fulfilling all righteousness, we're completing all the, the required or all of the steps of obedience uh, that he would need to do in order to be a good and perfect Savior for you and for me. Uh, and we saw at the end of chapter 3 that when Jesus came out of the water, uh, the Spirit descended like a dove on him, and the Father spoke over him, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, and so, we finished Matthew 3 in a way with, with the Father's unveiling or revealing the glory of the Son publicly. And so what we find in Matthew chapter 4 might, if we had never read through the Gospel of Matthew before, Matthew chapter 4 might come as a bit of a surprise to us. So like we have Jesus in obscurity, right, in his infancy and growing up. All of a sudden he is revealed in glory at his baptism. And so what, what we would rightly maybe, well maybe not rightly because it's not there, what we would expect is right after that for Jesus to like just start uh, kicking rear ends and taking names, reestablishing the, the kingdom of God in, in Israel, right? That, that's what the people were expecting of their Messiah. And instead, in Matthew chapter 4, we get a, a completely different uh, set of events that the Spirit will lead Jesus towards, but an absolutely essential uh, set of events that he is led towards. Um, and what I want to be careful about, and please hear me on the front end of this today, but we're talking about the temptation of Jesus. Uh, the, the fundamental thing that I do not want you to carry out of today, now that, and, and hear me really carefully on this, I do want you to leave today at the end going, God is calling us to say no to our temptation and our desires and to turn to him in faith. But what today is not, is today is not a four-step, this is how you overcome temptation talk. Okay, because uh, and we'll we'll delve into why that is as we go. Uh, but but the the fundamental thing that you and I need to understand this morning, and maybe I'll just lay it out here at the beginning, and we'll come back and hit it again at the end. Uh, this might be incredibly freeing for you, uh, or uh, depending on your response to it, uh, or it will be incredibly frustrating to you depending on your response to it. I want you all to just take just take a deep breath with me for just a minute. I'm going to give you some earth-shattering news that will frame everything that we talk about the rest of this morning. You are not enough. You are not good enough. You can't be good enough. You are not strong enough. You are not able enough. You are not smart enough. You're not cunning enough. You're not crafty enough. You're not resourceful enough. You are not enough. And I say that that will be either incredibly freeing as we go this morning, or you will leave incredibly frustrated going, then what in the world could I possibly do? Because the, the, what we will see is Jesus is tempted uh, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Because what we're setting up for is that Jesus will be tempted in a way beyond which anybody else has ever been tempted, in a sense, in the, in, the, in, the, in the severity of it, in a sense. But at the same time, he is tempted in a way that everyone before him and everyone behind him 
fails. Like, if we walk out of this morning with the, the, the big thing that we come out of this morning with is, well, if Jesus could do it, then I can too. We've missed it. The overarching thing this morning is Jesus overcame what you and I cannot overcome, and that's a really good thing for us as long as we are hidden in him. But if we leave this morning going, well, I just got to try harder, you will never be able to try hard enough. Because again, freeing thought, you're not enough. But what will also kind of come back off of that is that, that, that same phrase that could drive us in dependency towards Jesus can also be used to isolate us and push us away from Jesus. So the, the tempter and the deceiver might say to you, you're not enough, so why even bother? You're not enough, so you don't have a hope, so, so why are you here? You're not enough. He's just said you're not enough. You might as well go home and try somewhere else. That's what, that's what the alternate message would be given to you that would lead you away from life in Christ and towards just a hopelessness in yourself. Or you might leave with just a great spring in your step. I think I can do this all by myself, and you can't. Okay? So that's maybe we're, I'm front-loading you to, for what you can expect the rest of the way. And it's a really... It's a really helpless thing for us when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize, I can't do this. And yet, apart from that realization, you and I cannot live the life of faithful dependence and faithful obedience in Christ. If we think we can do it, we have deceived ourselves and we're missing the point. So, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You, you, you kind of have an idea of what we're, where we're going to end up this morning, uh, in a sense. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Right after his baptism, right after his public unveiling by the Father, says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Verse 1, if we stop and think about it for a minute, might cause us a little bit of like, oh, I don't like that. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Just think about it. Just Replay that, say that again with me slowly. Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. 
Right after, this is my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He is led with a purpose, and that purpose is testing in the wilderness. Now, James tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone, nor can he be tempted by uh, anything. But here we see that Jesus is about to be tempted by the devil with a purpose, and that purpose is this question. Will Jesus fail and fall short of the messianic expectations of who he is? Will Jesus fail to be a proficient, sufficient Savior? Now, think about this. In the wilderness, Israel failed by disobeying and rebelling against the Lord. In the wilderness, they, they, they refused to follow the word of the Lord. In the garden, surrounded by plenty, Adam failed to listen to the Lord and to follow him in obedience. So more important than three steps to not fall into temptation this morning as far as the message goes, the question that you and I are faced with right at the beginning of this is this big question, will Jesus or is Jesus the perfect Lamb of God who is able to take away my sin? Is he sinless, or has he also, like everyone before him, given in to temptation when it rears its head? And it's really interesting that in this, like, well, it's not enough that Jesus is tempted, but he is also tempted after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the full extent of which the human body is really capable of fasting for. Pushed to the limits. And, and I think it's almost a little bit of an understatement at the end of verse 2 to say, and he was hungry. Like when I read that in my mind, I was like, wow, it's been 40 minutes since he ate. I would be hungry. For, not 40 minutes. 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. Which tells me, putting myself in hunger, which means he's also, in a sense, vulnerable. He's not coming into temptation at a place of physical strength. He is coming into temptation at a place of physical depletion. Because remember, he's taking on, he is fully God in the flesh. He is fully experiencing all of what it means to be in the flesh. So after 40 days and 40 nights, hunger. I, you know what hunger is? Like we don't, we don't, maybe we don't know really what hunger is, but like we know what it is to be hangry. Right? That, that hunger, anger, collision. Some of you will hit it right at about 12.15 today and be like, it's time to go home. I'm there. You've experienced a toddler in the throes of hanger. It's like, just throw food at them until they get happy. And then, they, hey, they're human again. <laughs> I don't know. Have you, ever, have you ever, though, have you ever been hungry and in, your, and in your hunger and in your exhaustion maybe, have you ever been short-tempered? Have you ever done anything short-sighted because you're just, I'm just tired and I'm just hungry? You know what it is to be just like, I, you, you have probably even said to somebody before, I, I'm not really in the best place to make a decision right now because I'm tired and I'm hungry and, I'm, and the list goes on, right? Let's not talk about this right now because I'm not in the right headspace for this. Now think about that. Jesus, the sustainer of all of the world, taken on flesh, humbled himself, putting on flesh and experiencing that. And it's in that moment, that moment when you and I go, I am not the best version of myself, right? But Jesus is doing it without sin and yet he's still hungry, coming to the place where he is now about to be tempted. Have you ever been so hungry, though, that you would eat something you normally wouldn't eat? 
You ever had your, have you ever had your kids that like they've been so hungry that they would eat, like they've that's a it's a meal that they have always refused to eat and they're hungry enough that they finally eat it and they go that's great and then so you're like oh this like we'll feed it to them again next time and next time they're not hungry they're like what is this garbage they hopefully they're not talking to you that way but the look on their face right and the disdain on their like oh you made that like, you ate it last time and like, last time I was hungry right. In the midst of his hunger, the tempter comes to him, verse 3, and says to him, and, it, and we know who the tempter is because verse 1 tells us it's the devil, the, the, the same devil who tempts Adam and Eve in the beginning, the same one who continues to deceive and tr- attempt to deceive the world to today. The tempter comes and says to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And in every, each of the three temptations, he begins with that same phrase, if you are the son of God. It just track back up with me. I mentioned it a couple times, but Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. What does the voice of God the Father speak over Jesus the Son? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's interesting that in the ordering of Matthew's gospel, what happens right after that declaration? The temptation says, are you really the Son? The Father just said it publicly. And yet he comes and he says, is this who you are? And if this is who you are, and you're hungry like you are, why don't you just command these stones to become bread? Now, you and I might look at that and say, well, Jesus isn't going to fall for that because that's just a clearly like a, you know, like a gotcha scheme. Have you ever been really hungry? And somebody said, hey, there's food on the counter. Yeah, I'm talking like really hungry. Have you ever turned down food when you were really hungry? Right here, we can probably get an idea that Jesus is not like us. If you gave me the power to make bread, and I'm 40 days hungry, and you said, hey, if you're hungry, you can zap that rock. I'm like, we'll zap 12 rocks. I'm hungry. Remember, this, isn't, this is not at, at, at full physical strength. This is at the fullness of human emptiness. But challenging the very word that God has already said, and, 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 and at face value, we might say, well, what's the big deal with this anyway? Where's the temptation? If Jesus is God, Jesus is God, God can turn rocks into bread, Why is it wrong for him to turn rocks into bread in this situation and feed himself? Later on, he's going to multiply fish and loaves for people that don't have food. So what's so wrong about him feeding himself right now? He's hungry. Eat. Right? If we're just like running through, I could justify this bad boy real quick. But here is the question. Why is Jesus fasting? Why is he in the wilderness in the first place? Is he not eating simply because the place is desolate, like there's nothing to eat? It's not explicit as the Father telling him to fast, but we are, it is clear in verse 1 that he is there because the Father has led him there. And here is the rub of this that maybe is lost a little bit in the process. The temptation is saying, you're here in a desolate place, satisfy yourself. 
You have the means. Feed yourself. In a place, though, where the Father has led him, he has gone by obedience, Jesus will eat when the Father gives him something to eat. Or when the Father leads him back out of the wilderness. So the temptation, if we draw it out a little bit, the temptation is to step out of dependence on his Father, who has led him to this place. Saying, if you... Hey, if you're really the Son of God, he care, your Father cares about you. He wouldn't care if you turned some loaves into, into bread. Doesn't he care for you? And Jesus refuses to satisfy himself where the Father has led him to a place of dependence. Which is interesting when you think about the way that the Israelites grumbled and the reason for their grumbling. This, this is parallels a little bit Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites, when they're in the desert place, they, they don't really wait till they're 40 days into hunger. They begin to grumble and moan against Moses and say, you give us something to eat, right? And God graciously provides them manna every day, and, and, which is like mystery, mystery bread that just shows up every day. They're, they collect it. God sustains them in the wilderness. In the middle of God sustaining them in the wilderness, they say, we're tired of this stinking manna. We would really like some meat. Well, think about that. God is faithfully sustaining them every day. And in the midst of God faithfully taking care of them, they say to God, what you are giving me is not enough. And it's that same line of temptation that is issued to Jesus. Is, is, does the Father care about you? Since he hasn't fed you yet, why don't you feed yourself? You could turn them, like, use your power, you turn it into this. And what's interesting is that the, the response that Jesus gives, as it is written, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And what's interesting about the full quote in, in, in Deuteronomy 8.3 is it centers around God's provision of manna to his people. So you look at it, he says, and he humbled you. This is, this is the history of God's taking care of his people, even in the wilderness. Okay, so if I track up to verse 2, which isn't on the screen, he says, and you shall remember, he's talking to the people of Israel, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So when God is relaying it to the Israelites, he says to them, the reason why you got manna in the wilderness as you were wandering, even though 40 years of wandering was tacked on because of their disobedience, but God faithfully provided for them, giving them manna which they didn't know before, their fathers had never seen before. The purpose of it was so that they would live in desperate dependence on every provision of the Father, trusting him to give them what they need. And so when Jesus says, as it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of the Father, he is saying, until the Father feed, like the Father will feed me when I'm ready, like when he deems I'm ready to eat because I trust him and I'm living in complete, like he's living in complete dependence on the Father. 
No food or drink held there, following there in faithful obedience, saying, I'm not doing anything until the Father says so. So it's a, it's, think about how subtle of a temptation that is, though. You've been out here a long time. Eating and drinking is not sinful. But Jesus says, unless the Father gives it to where he has led me, I'm not taking it. And I'm not doing it. Jesus does what the Israelites could never have done and what you and I would never do in the same situation, if we're being honest. He, he, he succeeds where you and I are, are weak. Even in his weakness, he doesn't sin. So then the devil, verse 5, takes him to the holy city, takes him to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And, 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 and one idea of this is the, the one side of the temple overlooks the Kidron Valley, so it's like a 300-foot drop-off. And he says, again, if you're the Son of God, if this is who you are, jump off because God's Word even says His angels will catch you. All right, so now we're, we're, we're going to up it a little bit. We'll quote Scripture to you. Isn't this, what, isn't this what Scripture says? Doesn't it say He won't, he won't let you uh, hit your foot against a stone, that He will command His angels concerning you? If you're the Son of God, just jump off. Think about, think about the great notoriety you get. You're the guy that jumped off the temple and the angels rescued you. He quotes, the devil quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12 to him in this. And what I would give you as a caution that we learn from the devil in this case is that quoting Scripture does not equate with a right handling of the Word and a right application of the Word. And it also means that we ought to be very careful in the way that we receive the Word, apply the Word to our lives. The Scripture is not wrong. In fact, what's really interesting about this, at the end of our passage today in verse 11, when the temptation is over, who comes and ministers to him? Angels do. What? Isn't that Psalm 91, 11? That he will command his angels concerning you? The Father does do that. When the Father says it's time to do that. And what the, what the devil is trying to say is, hey, force the issue. Prove it. If you're the Son of God, like, jump off, and, uh, and the angels will come in and, and, and rescue you. And Jesus responds out of Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's framed within the, all of the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a call to the people of Israel and to the people of the Lord to obey and do what rightly what God has commanded them to do and to know and to believe and how to act. So what he's saying is, he's, he, again, not putting the Lord your God to the test is, is believing the word and then acting and living in right response to it. Maybe most of you aren't daredevils, but if you were the Son of God, and you're tempted to, well, you're not the Son of God, but if you were tempted to prove, how many times, we had, Ben, can I pick on you? Ben, where'd you go? Oh, God, I can pick on him then. So, so we we're in the youth building this morning, and we we're talking about how stinking cold it's going to get on Thursday, right? Like 20 below or whatever. And, uh, and I said, Ben, I think you, should, you, you ought to just go outside and see how long you can go out there. And he goes, 
I'm going to go out there with no clothes on. He goes, I'll even dive in the snowbank for you. I said, I think you should spend 10 minutes out there. And he goes, okay. I said, Allie, why don't you jump on Google real quick and find out, Allie, how long does it take to get hypothermia in minus 20 degree weather? And she goes, fully clothed, about 10 minutes. <laughs> and, I, and I'm joking with Ben, and, and we, we walked that back. Don't worry, Lindsay, he's not going to do that. <laughs> I think. I think, we got it. I think we got it all squared away. But have you ever, I mean, we like to think that that's limited to us when we were children, but have you ever, you ever get challenged, like, who are you? Why don't you prove who you are? Why don't you show by your strength who you are? Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you take this unnecessary step to just show, like, hey, this is, this is who you are? And, there, and there, there could be that temptation even in the Lord of it. Well, if you belong to him, why don't you, why don't you take this why don't you make this rash decision? And, 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 and we go, well, I belong to him, and he says he'll take care of me. Indirect disobedience to what his word calls us to do. Right? Not putting him to the test, not frivolously challenging him to show who he is, or not frivolously challenging who we are in him, but resting in his timing, in his provision, in his care. And then in verse 8, another temptation. And this one, I think... Maybe right up there with the food. I think this one probably, for you and for me, this would be where we fail. The devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, I will give these if you will fall down and worship me. You imagine. Jesus is taken to a high place. Every kingdom of the earth laid out, and it says, in their glory. All of the national treasuries laid open. All of the world's resources. All of the world's libraries. All of their national goods unfolded before you. I think about a pe- and, and you think about a people who are groaning under oppression. This is all yours. All of a sudden, you go from the opportunity to be a foreign news watcher or, or news channel watcher to fixer of all of the world's problems. Can you imagine? You, uh, all of the glory of the United States laid before you, all of its riches, all of its resources, all of its abilities, it's yours. You can fix it however you see fit. I go, oh, I wouldn't be tempted by that. Hogwash, you wouldn't. How much of our conversation centers around what's wrong with the world that we live in? And if we had the ability, the power, the authority, the, the, the resources to fix it, what we would do with it? Everything in the whole world laid before him and said, do what you want with it. Make the world a better place in the way that you think it ought to be a better place. I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you jump for that? There's a couple of follies in what the devil offers, though. First of all, none of it belongs to him, and he's not able to give any of it away. Even in its brokenness, God's word is pretty clear to us. He sets up kingdoms, and he tears down kingdoms. He establishes rulers. He tears down rulers. Uh, uh, so much so that in the Old Testament, he talks about bringing the Assyrians from far off, and he, and he talks about it like whistling for a dog and bringing them in obedience. Like that the Lord is in control of all of them. 
Now, does that mean that everything that every government and every kingdom does is right? By no means, no. But it means that they are held and they are established and they don't have any place outside of God's allowing them to be there. The devil has no control over them, and yet he promises, I'll give them all to you. He has no ability or no power to give them. So he promises, one, what he's not able to give. But then the second thing and the more important thing that Jesus highlights that in his quoting of Deuteronomy 6.13 is, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It doesn't matter what the promise is on the other line, you are not to worship anything other than the Lord. And this hits at the heart, maybe more so than the others even, of the people of Israel. The people of Israel, if you follow their history throughout the Old Testament, what is always their nagging sin? It's idolatry. They are constantly turning in worship to anything and everything other than the Lord who saved them. They're constantly yoking themselves to other gods. They're constantly being called back by the prophets, put away your gods and return to a right faith in the Lord. The people of Israel fail over and over and over and over and over again on this point. If you read through First and Second Chronicles even and, and, the, and the kings, they might say this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord and yet he didn't tear down the high places. He didn't remove the idolatry from among them. Like It is the thing that they never loose themselves from. And in this case, they are offered all of the kingdoms of the world laid out before him and all he has to do is bend the knee to somebody else one time. The people of Israel will be like, boom, we're done. You and I, done. And I think one of the things that, that we need to wrestle with when I, when I circle back around and I say to you and to me, you and I are not enough. I think you and I underestimate the power of our flesh in the midst of temptation. You and I have a world-class ability to justify our behavior. We can twist circumstances, events, God's word, into a justification to do what we want to do. And James it gives us, James gives a, a, a kind of the life cycle of sin. He says that God doesn't tempt anyone. He says, but, but sin comes around in this way. You're tempted, and when you're lured, by your own desires. We're big fishing country here. You test out the lure until you find which one the fish are taking that day. That's a picture of who we are in our temptations, like a shiny object. But then our ability to manipulate it, the temptation to say it's really not that bad. It's really not affecting anybody else. Maybe something good could come out of this. World-class ability to do this. And I love Paul's honesty in Romans chapter 7. It gives us kind of a picture we've we've hit here before. But Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. Paul gives us kind of this inner picture or the language that we would say we, we could probably identify really closely to it. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I, do not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. 
So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And if we just stop there, anybody ever feel that? I know the right thing to do, and yet I'm not doing the right thing. I know the thing I don't want to do, but there we are again. It says, for I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That ever describe the feelings of your heart? I delight in the, the, in the law of the Lord. I delight in His Word, and yet I still see myself doing the sinful things I don't want to do. And then I, I love what he says next. He says, well, and maybe not this phrase, wretched man that I am, like a horrible person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body? Like, where is the way out of this? Who delivers the victory from this? And I love that the very next thing that he says is not, I just need to redouble my efforts and try harder. Instead, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Where does the help come from? It comes from the one who has faced temptation without sin, who has vanquished sin and death. The one who conquered sin and death and guilt and shame on the cross at Calvary, who rose in victory. That is where our help comes from. And, and, And the subtle thing that you and I would hear instead is, this is all up to me. I have to do this. But even Paul says, wrestling through, not doing the things I want, doing the things I don't want. Where will the help come from? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, I want to be really careful. What I am not saying is, because Jesus is perfect in overcoming temptation and defeating sin and death, and because you and I face this unending battle against temptation to sin, that we ought to just throw up our hands and say, doesn't matter. Paul addresses that in Romans. Does he say, he says, should we continue to just sin so that grace might abound? Look how great Jesus is. He says, no. Right? Even in Hebrews, it says, in your struggle against sin, you haven't come to the place of, of shedding blood. In other words, you haven't violently opposed the sin in your life yet. Well, there's a call for us to do that. But it flows out of the victory that Jesus has already purchased through his death, burial, and resurrection. It is not. This is not a simply a matter of you try harder and you'll do better. If it is up to you, apart from God and the provision of grace through faith in Christ and through the indwelling work of His Spirit, you are not enough. Apart from the Spirit of God at work in your life, apart from clinging desperately to Jesus, you don't have it. And what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 is on this side of heaven, even, even with the Spirit working and waging war against the members of sin in our life, there is an ongoing struggle that you and I will not see the end of until the other side of heaven. And yet, we have a Savior who is sufficient because He went through temptation that you and I and every other person would fail to. And He came out 
victorious. Not just from his temptation, but then he was piled on with all of the sin and death and guilt and shame for every person on this planet. Taking it to the cross, buried in it, raised in victory over it. You and I have a sufficient Savior. More than sufficient Savior. If we don't leave this morning with an appreciation of how incredible Jesus is in His sinlessness, and because of that, how capable He is of rescuing us from our sin, we've missed it. If we leave going, Jesus, He just set the game plan. This is what I must do. Well, yes, He sets an example, but He does what you and I cannot do. He does it perfectly. Uh, you and I, we, we ought to recognize when temptation counters God's character and God's word. We ought to recognize that. And that's, a, and that's helpful in countering temptation and turning towards Him in faith. But the only way that you and I can resist temptation in faith, responding to God in faith, is by clinging desperately to Jesus in the midst of it. And the problem is, is most of the time we treat temptation like we treat dieting. Nicole, you can correct everybody after I say this because I'm probably going to get it all wrong. But you, you tell me if I'm wrong on this. Our, in, in, our, our dieting says, I just have to deny myself, deny myself, deny myself, and not fill it with anything else. Maybe fill it with broccoli. Deny myself six days, cheat day on the seventh day. Woo! That feels better now. Diet six days, cheat day on the seventh day. Feeling better. You take that same mentality into, into temptation. If, if we are so focused only on denying ourselves, but not on the reason why we are denying ourselves. If, if in the midst of temptation we are more concerned with ourselves than we are the God who owns us and to whom we owe our lives, we're going to fail. If, if it's always about just me, even in our fighting temptation and our struggle against sin, most of the time the focus is not what is a right response and who is Jesus and how can I behold Him in His glory and how can I fall more in love with His presence and how do I want more of Him in my life? It's usually I just don't want to do that thing. Well, you might not do that thing and you just exchange it for another thing. If the thing that you most want in the midst of the temptation, though, does not become the Lord Himself, His presence with you, all right, let's turn some stones into bread. Let's jump off some buildings. Let's, let's have the kingdoms of the earth because we're going to justify getting what we want unless we see it as the affront to God and His character. Unless we see the threat to our relationship with God in the midst of sin. But then at the same time, if we miss this, that Jesus has paid it all, and because of him, we can now respond by faith and hold to him in faith-filled dependence. It's little wonder that we spend most of our time in just defeated attitudes towards temptation and sin. I just say, I can't understand why I'm not doing this. In the midst of that, are you cultivating your heart for the Lord? Are you delighting in his word so that his word comes quickly and you see the distortion of it in temptation? If our solution is just simply, I'm going to try to remove myself from, from temptation and go sit in another area, still apart from the sustaining work of Jesus and hope it works out okay, I'm just going to change the personality of what I'm doing. 
but I'm not changing the heart of the struggle. So one of the things that we see in Jesus is that Jesus perfectly obeys, but Jesus perfectly depends on, and Jesus perfectly rests in the care of the Father instead of seeking his own interests. And so if we miss this abiding in Jesus as the pinnacle of what it means to walk with him, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk with him, and we turn it into just a list of things that we ought to try harder at, we'll meet back next week and just be frustrated. Maybe for two weeks you say, that was really great. And then as soon as the wheels come off, I don't know, I'm not good enough. And here's, here, here's the best gift you can give yourself, to realize that you are not enough and that you desperately need Jesus, not just for salvation, but for every waking moment of your life this side of heaven. You desperately need Jesus because you're not enough. You need God's wisdom because you're not smart enough. You need His strength because you're not strong enough. You need His presence because you are not enough. Let that helplessness drive you to finding sufficient. He, he, he is enough. He's more than enough. But if you miss that today and you leave going, I'm not enough, I just have to try harder, we'll see you next week and you'll be frustrated again. Rest in Jesus. He has finished the work. He's the perfect one. Delight yourself in Him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He is the Son of God who came for us, and He is the one that we can put our hope in, and He will not disappoint.